Well, good morning from Northern California. It's a gray day, a gray day today. Very cold, still have frost on the rooftops. My yard is overgrown. My winter grass is now four or five inches high. Weeds, I should say. Most of it is weeds. My roses have gone to seed, of course. I should have pruned them in January. I'm going to do that today. I'm going to I'm going to muster up some gumption and get my my long underwear on and go outside. I know that sounds funny for everybody that might be in the colder areas of the world. But it's freezing here for us, and I'm going to go clip those rose bushes today. I have to move my car out of the driveway, and I have to move sandbags away from the garage door from the rainstorms to get into my mower. Hmm. There's a possibility I could get to the mower from the other side yard. I'll have to look. But these these uh, weeds have to be cut in the front. They're just, I can't, I can't let them get much higher. It's going to be really hard to mow. Anyway, that's later. Now I'm going to read France from Emily Carr's autobiography called Growing Pains. Two parrots out in Canada waiting your, t- waiting your return. It is absolutely necessary that... Is it, ne- is it absolutely necessary that you buy another Millie? Those at home are green parrots. This is an African gray. I have always wanted an African gray, frightfully. Here we are in Liverpool. Actually, it crosses worldwide animal distributors. It is the opportunity of a lifetime. Perhaps pity of my green seasick face softened my sister's heart and opened her purse. Half the price of the African gray stole into my hand. We called the bird Rebecca, and she was a most disagreeable parrot. However, nothing hoisted my spirits like a new pet, the delight of winning its its confidence. Hurrying through London, we crossed the channel, slid through lovely French country, came to Paris. My sister knew French, but would not talk. I did not know French and would not learn. (laughs) I had neither ear nor patience. I wanted every moment of Paris for art. Oh, those are memories for me. Wow. Actually, I just learned enough French to get me by. I took a six-week crash course on that and tried to move my way through Paris and France uh, using my very limited French at the time, my first time in France. And uh, (laughs) it's funny. They at least, the people there at least give you credit for trying, I think. If you try, they're more amenable to helping. And, um, yeah, 
I never had a hard time in France, really. People were nice to me. Okay, back to the book. <laughs> My sister studied the history of Paris, kept notes and diaries. I did not care a hoot about Paris history. I wanted now to find out what this new art was about. I heard it ri ridiculed, praised, liked, and hated. Something in me, something in it stirred me, but I could not at first make head or tail of what it was all about. I saw at once that it made recent conservative painting look flavorless, little, unconvincing. I had brought me, I had brought with me a letter of introduction to a very modern artist named Harry Gibb. When we had found a small flat in the Latin Quarter, Rue, Rue Campion, Campion, <laughs> Rue Campagne Premier, off Montparnasse Avenue, I presented my letter. You know what? I have to stop for a second because I need to put on something around my neck and head. It's still too cold in the house to be... I know, I don't turn up my heat. I mean, I'm. it's at a normal temperature. It's not like it's freezing in here, but I have to put a scarf on in the mornings usually and a little hat. Let me find out which hat I can put on. There we go. Okay, I've got my nice my, my wool my wool hat and a and a little hand knit. Oh yeah, that's much better. Boy. I have a real short haircut, <laughs> and I can definitely, definitely feel when I'm not covered. Okay, here we are. Let's get back to the book. Okay. So, here we are. Where were we? They were in Montparnasse Avenue. I presented my letter. Harry Gibb was dour, his wife pretty. They lived in a studio overlooking a beautiful garden cultivated by nuns. I stood by the side of Harry Gibb, staring in amazement up at his walls. Some of his pictures rejoiced, some shocked me. There, were, there, were, there was rich, delicious juiciness in his color, interplay between warm and cool tones. His, he intensified vividness by, using, by the use of a complementary color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that means, for those that aren't familiar with that term, complementary color. So if he's using a rich, rich, juicy red, he's going to be putting a green next to it. It makes it pop. Okay, he intensified, let's see. His mouth had a crooked, tight-lipped twist. He was fighting bitterly for recognition of the new art. I felt him I felt him watching me, quick to take hurt at even such raw criticism as mine. Mrs. Gibb and my sister sat upon a sofa. After one look, my sister dropped her eyes to the floor. Modern art appalled her. <laughs> Miss, Mr. Gibb's landscapes and still life delighted me. Brilliant, luscious, clean. Against the distortion of his nudes, I felt revolt. Indians distorted both 
human and animal forms, but they distorted with meaning, for emphasis, and with great sincerity. Here, I felt distortion was often used for design or in an effort to shock rather than convince. Our Indians get down to stark reality. I just have to say something real quickly here. Yesterday I was at the museum, um, the Young Museum, and I saw the late Monet paintings. And I've seen them before, some of them before, but um, I'm always taken by his work. And this time what took me, well, I saw his show in um, Gauguin yesterday. And though his use of color, Monet's use of color, was just extremely brilliant of what colors he put next to each other. And I really, I'm going to go back. I'll probably see that show at least another time, if not two more times before it goes. But um, what really got me thinking yesterday was I need to pick just something and just keep painting it. Although, um, yeah, I just do. I just need to do that, even if it's like sitting here from my studio window and painting the same street scene from across the window here, you know? Um, I don't know. I just want to do that. He he painted, of course, his water lilies over and over, and he painted a scene from of his house in Giverny um, through the rose bushes, like, many times, and the weeping willow. And I just thought, you know, and it's... It's a landscape, but it's not. It was very abstract. And so I I was really taking some, like, discern, discerning notes yesterday about what he did on the canvas and what his subject matter was. And, of course, I mean, that, that was during his time, the, progress, the um, Impressionist period, but... When I went back into Gauguin, of course, around the same time-ish, um, Gauguin was more like me, or I see myself more like him as far as being more mixed in what my subject matter is. And he was even, they even showed his work as a, his sculptural work, which I have a bunch of sculpture in the back of my house, too. It's like, what am I going to do with that? But I have wanted to sculpt again. I had wa- have wanted to build again and do some three-dimensionals. And I, I've actually wanted to do some three-dimensional construction and then paint those constructions as still lives. So I'm going to try. I don't know. I This is why I go to the museums, to get pumped up again about what I'm doing in my own work. Okay, back to the book. This is going to be a longish chapter. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Where am I? We're with Mrs. Gibb and Mr. Gibb. Mm -mm. Modern art appalled her. This was his sister. Her sister. Mr. Gibb's landscapes and still life delighted me. Brilliant, luscious, clean. Against the distortion of his nudes, I felt revolt. Indians distorted both human and animal forms, but they distorted with meaning, for emphasis, and with great sincerity. 
Here, I felt distortion was often used for design or in an effort to shock rather than convince. Our Indians get down to stark reality. I could not face that tight-lipped, mirthless grin of Mr. Gibbs with too many questions. There were many perplexities to sort out. Strange to say, it was Mrs. Gibb who threw light on many things about the new art for me. She was not a painter, but she followed the modern movement closely. I was braver at approaching her than her husband with questions. I asked Mr. Gibbs' advice as to where I should study. Colorossi, he replied. At Colorossi's, men and women students work together. At Julian's, the classes are separate. It is often distinct. It is often distinct advantage for women students to see the stronger work of men. Mr. Gibb had not a high opinion of the work of women artists. Not many people do. <laughs> or did. The first month at Colorosis was hard. There was no other woman in the class. There was not one word of my own language spoken. The French professor gabbled and just gesticulated before my easel passed on. I did not know whether he had praised or condemned. I missed women. There was not even a woman model. I begged my sister to go to the office and inquire if I were in the wrong place. They said, no, mademoiselle, it's quite right where she is. Other ladies will come by and by. I plodded mutely on, till one day I heard a splendid, strong English damn behind me. Turning, I saw a big man ripping the lining pocket from his jacket with a knife. I saw, too, from his dirty brushes how badly he needed a paint rag. I went to the dammer and said, mister, if you will translate my lessons, I will bring you a clean paint rag every morning. Paint rags were always scarce in Paris. He agreed, but he was often absent. The professor said I was doing very well. I had good color sense. That miserable, chalky lifelessness that had seized me in London overtook me again. The life class rooms were hot and airless. Mr. Gibb told me of a large studio run by young couple by a young couple who employed the best critics in Paris. Mr. Gibb himself criticized there. Students said he was dour and very severe, but that he was an exceedingly good teacher. I would have also, I would also have the advantage of getting criticism in my own language. I studied in this studio only a few weeks and before Mr. Gibbs' month of criticism came, I was flat in hospital where I lay for, for three hellish months and came out a wreck. The Paris doctor said, as, he, as had the London one, I must keep out of big cities or die. My sister and I decided to go to Sweden. While gathering strength to travel, I sat brooding in an old cemetery at the foot of our street. Why did cities hate, thwart, and damage me so? Home people were wearing were wearying of my breakdowns. They wrote, give art up, come home, stay home. I showed some of my Indian sketches to Mr. Gibb. He was as convinced as I that the new art was going to help my work out west. Show me a bigger way of approach. We, we enjoined Sweden. She was very like Canada. I took hot salt baths. In spring, we returned to France, but I never worked in studios of Paris again. 
I joined a class in landscape painting that Mr. Gibb had just formed in a place two hours run from Paris. The little town was called Crissy and Brie. Mrs. Gibb found me if Mrs. Gibb found me for rooms close to their own. My sister remained in Paris. Cressy was quaint. It was surrounded by a canal. Many fine houses backed on the canal. They had great gardens going to the edge of the water and had little wash booths on the, count- on the canal. Some were private, some public. The women did their laundry here and were very merry about it. Shrill voices, boisterous laughter, twisted in and out between the stone walls of the, can- of the canal. Lovely trees drooped over the walls to dabble their branches. Women knelt in wooden trays, spread washing on flat stones before the washing booths, soaped, folded, beat with paddles, rinsed. Slap, slap went the paddles smacking in the soap and out the dirt while the women laughed and chatted and the water gave back soapy reflections of their rosy faces and white coifs. The streets of Cressy were narrow and paved with cobblestones. Iron-rimmed cartwheels clattered noisily. So did wooden shoes. Peddlers shouted. Everybody shouted so as to be heard above the racket. Opposite my bedroom window was a wine shop. They were They were obliged to close at midnight. To evade the law, the wine vendors carried tables into the middle of the street and continued carousing far into the night. I have watched a wedding feast keep it up till four in the morning, periodically leaving the feast to procession around the town, carrying lanterns and shouting. Sleep was impossible. I took what fun I could out of watching from my window. Distant from Cressy, by a mile or by a half mile, were tiny villages in all directions. Each village consisted of one street of stone cottages, whitewashed. A delicate trail of grapevine was trained above every cottage door, its main stem twisted brown and thick as a man's arm, its greenery well-tended and delicately lovely. They grow things beautifully, these Frenchmen, Trees, vines, flowers, you felt the living things giving back all the love and care the growers bestowed on them. A Scotch nurseryman of wide repute told me arboriculturists went to France to study. Nowhere else could they learn better the art of growing, caring for, pruning trees. I tramped the countryside, sketch sack on shoulder. The fields were lovely lying like a spread of gay patchwork against red-gold wheat, cool, pale oats, red-purple of new-turned soil, green, green grass, and orderly, well-trimmed trees. The life of the peasants was hard, but it did not harden their hearts nor their laughter. They worked all day in the fields. The cottages stood empty. At night, I met weary men and women coming home, bent with toil but happy-hearted, pausing to nod at me and have a word with Josephine, a green parrot I had bought in Paris and used to take out sketching with me. She wore an anklet and a chain and rode on the rung of my camp stool. The peasants loved Josephine. 
Rebecca was a disappointment. She was sour, malevolent. Josephine knew more French words than I. I did flatter myself, however, that my grin had more meaning for the peasants than Josephine's French chatter. Mr. Gibb took keen interest in my work, despite my being a woman student. His criticisms were terse, to the point. I never came in contact with his other students. They took tea with Mrs. Gibb often. Mr. Gibb showed them his work. He never showed it to me. Peeved, I asked, Why do you never allow me to see your own work now, Mr. Gibb? The mirthless, twisted grin came. Don't have to. Those others don't know what they are after. You do. Your work must not be influenced by mine. You will be one of the painters, women painters, he modified, of your day. That was high praise from Mr. Gibb. But he could never let me forget I was only a woman. He would never allow a woman could compete with men. One day, I ruined a study through trying an experiment. I expected a scolding. Instead, Mr. Gibb grinning said, That's why I like teaching you. You'll risk ruining your best in order to find something better. He had one complaint against me, however. He said, You work too hard. Always at it. Easy, easy. Why such pell-mell haste? Mr. Gibb, I dare not loiter. My time over here is so short. Soon I must go back to Canada. You can work out in Canada. All life before you. I replied, You do not understand. Our far west has complete art isolation. No exhibitions, no artists, no art talk. So much the better. Chatter, chatter, chatter. Where does it lead? said Mr. Gibb. Your silent Indian will teach you more than all the art jargon. I had two canvases accepted and well hung in the Salon des Automes. (coughs) Excuse me, the rebel Paris show of the year. Mr. Gibb was pleased. My sister returned to Canada. The Gibbs moved into Brittany, I with them. Saint-Iflamme was a small watering place. For six weeks, each year it woke to a flutter of life. People came from cities to bathe and to eat. The little hotel was famed for its good food. The holiday guests came and went punctually to the minute. Then saint Ephemé went to sleep again for another year. The Gibbs's rooms were half a mile away from the hotel. I had no one to translate for me. Except for talk with my parrots, I lived dumb. Madame Madame Pichotto owned the hotel. Her son cooked for us. Her niece was maid. All of them were very kind to to the parrots and me. I was at work in the fields or woods at 8 o'clock each morning. At noon, I returned to the hotel for dinner, rested until 3. Mr. Gibb, having criticized my study of the morning, out where I worked, now came to the hotel and criticized the afternoon work done the day before. My supper in a basket. I went out again, did a late afternoon sketch, ate my supper, then lay flat on the ground, my eyes on the trees above me, or shut against the earth, according as, according as I backed or fronted my rest. Then up again and at it till dark. 
I had a gesticulating, nodding, laughing acquaintance with every peasant. Most of them were very poor. Canadian cows would have scorned some of the stone huts in which French peasants lived. Our Indian huts were luxurious compared with them. Earth floor, one black cook pot for all purposes. When performing its rightful function, it sat outside the door, mounted on a few stones, a few twigs burning underneath. Cabbage soup and black bread appeared to be the staple diet. The huts had no furniture. On the clay floor, a portion framed in on the clay floor, a portion framed in with planks and piled with straw was bed for the whole family. There was no earth, no hearth. What light and air entered the hut did so through the open door. Yet these French peasants were always gay, always singing and chattering. I watched two little girls playing mother outside a hut one day. For babies, one dandled a stick the other a stone. They sang and lullabied, wrapping their children in the skirt of the one poor garment, clinging around their own meager little figures. Whatever, ha whatever they lacked of life's necessities, nature had abundantly bestowed upon them maternal instinct. I stuffed paint rags with grass, knobbed one end, of a, knobbed one end for a head, straw sticking out of its top for hair. I painted faces on the rag, swathed the creatures in drawing paper, and gave each little girl the first dolly she had ever owned. She kissed, she hugged. Never were grand dolls so fondly cherished. On a rounded hilltop among gorse bushes, a little cow herd promenaded her vodka. <clears throat> I loved this dignified phrase in connection with the small, agile little Breton, Breton cows, Breton cows, Breton. The child's thin legs were scratched by the furze bushes as she rustled among them, rounding up her little cows. She had one. She had but one thin, tattered garment. Through its holes, you saw bare skin. She knitted as she herded. Shyly, she crept nearer and nearer. I spoke to her in English. She shook her head. Beyond, beyond promener la vaca, I could not understand her. She came closer and closer till she knelt by my side, one grimy little hand on my knee. All the time she watched my mouth intently. If I laughed, her face poked forward looking, looking. Did the child want to see me laugh? Did, sorry, did the child want to see my laugh being made? I was puzzled. There was great amazement in her big, dark eyes. Presently, she fingered her own white teeth and pointed to mine. Dio, Dio, she murmured. I understood that it was my gold-crowned tooth which had so astonished her. There was an aloof ridge of land behind the village of Saint-Eflamé. I, I climbed it often. On the top stood three cottages in a row and one stable. Two of the cottages were tight shut. Their owners worked, sorry, their owners working in the fields. 
the third cottage lived a bricklayer and his family. The woman was always at home with her four small children. They ran after her like a brood of chicks. The children sat round me as I worked. Always little Annette. Sorry, I sat around me as I worked. Always little Annette, aged four, was closest, a winsome, pretty thing, very shy. I made the woman understand that I came from Canada and would soon be returning. She told the children. Annette came very close, took a corner of my skirt, tugged it, and looked up beseeching. The mother said, Annette wants you to, wants to go. It's, here's what it says. It doesn't sound right, but here's what it says. The mother said, Annette wants go you Canada. I put my arm around her. With wild crying, the child suddenly broke away, clinging to her mother and to France. This woman was proud of her comfortable house. She beckoned me to come see. The floor was of bare gray earth swept clean. Beds were concealed in the walls behind sliding panels. There was a great open hearth with a swinging crane and a huge black pot. There were two rush-bottomed chairs and four little wooden stools, a table and a broom, a table, a broom, and a cat. On the shelf were six Breton Breton bowls for the cabbage soup, smelling ungraciously this very moment as it cooked. A big loaf of black bread was on the shelf, too. They were a dear, kind, happy family. I made a beautiful rag doll for Annette. It had scarlet worsted hair. Annette was speechless. She clutched the, teacher, the creature tight, kissing its rag nose as reverently as if it had been the Pope's toe. She held her darling at arm's length to look. Her kiss had left the rag nose black. Laying the doll in her mother's arms, she ran off sobbing. We saw her take a little bucket to the well in the garden. When Annette came back to us, there was a circle around her mouth several shades lighter than the rest of her face. The front of her dress was wet and soapy. She seized her doll, hugged and hugged again. There was a farm down in the valley. House, stables, and hayricks formed a square. The court sheltered me from the wind. I often worked there. A Breton matron in her black dress and white cap came out of the house. Brr. Poof, poof, she laughed, mocking the wind, then pointing to my blue hands, beckoned me to follow. She was proud of her cozy home. It was well-to-do, even sumptuous for a present. Fine brasses were on the mantel shelf, a side of bacon, strings of onions, hanks of flax for spinning hung from the rafters. There was a heavy black table, solid and rich with age, a bench on either side of the table a hanging lamp above. There was a great open hearth and spread on flat stones, cakes were baking before the open fire. A mountain of already baked cakes stood beside the hearth. The woman saw my wonder at so many cakes and nodded. Laying three pieces of stick on the table, she pointed to the middle one. Now, she said, to the stick on the left, she pointed, saying, before to the right stick after. She went through the process of sham chewing, pointing to the great piles of cakes, saying, Threshers. I nodded comprehension. 
The threshers were expected at her place tomorrow. The cakes were her preparation. She signified that I might sketch here, where it was warm instead of facing the bitter wind. Again, she sat herself by the hearth to watch the cakes and took up her knitting. The outer door burst open. Without invitation, a Church of England clergyman and two high-nosed Englishwomen entered. Using English words and an occasional Breton one, the man said the English ladies wished to see a Breton home. The woman's graciousness congealed at the unmannerly entry of the three visitors. She was cold and stiff. The visitors handed, handled her things, asking, How much? How much? No, no. She clutched her treasure, treasures, replaced their, her brasses on the mantel shelf, her irons on the hearth. They saw the, piles of, the pile of cakes. The clergyman made a long, jumbled demand that they be allowed to taste. The English ladies want to try Breton cakes. No, no, no. The women took her cakes and put them away in a cupboard. At last the visitors went. The, women's, the woman's graciousness came back. Going to the cupboard, she heaped a plate with cakes and pouring syrup over them, brought and set them on the table before me. Poor mademoiselle. Such a smile, such a nod. I must eat at once. Shaking her fist at the door, the woman went outside, shutting the door behind her, burst it open, clattered in. Ah, she scolded. Ah. Again, going out, she knocked politely, waited. She was delighted with her play acting. We laughed together. Some five miles from St. Aflame was a quaint village in which I went to sketch. I was told a butcher went that way every morning early, coming back at dusk. I dickered with the butcher and drove forth, pierced, perched, sorry, perched up in the cart in front of the meat, hating the smell of it. I sketched the old church standing knee-deep in graves. I sketched the village and a roadside calvary. Dusk came, but not the butcher. Dark fell, still no butcher. There was nothing for it, but I must walk the five miles back. The road was twisty and very dark. I decided it would be best to follow along the seashore where there was more light. My sketch pack weighed about 50 pounds. The sand was soft and sinky. I was always stopping to empty it out of my shoes. I dragged into the hotel at long last, tired and very cross. Madame, Pichu Madame Pichudo beckoned me with her little wine shop in the corner beyond the parlor. That butcher, oh yes, he drunk there often. His forget was bad. But, madame, she does not forget her little one, her mademoiselle, starving in a strange village. Madame had remembered. She had kept a little piece in the cupboard. Its littleness was so enormous of a serving of dessert that it disgusted my tiredness. Madame Pusciuto forgot that she had supplied her starved mademoiselle with a basket containing six hard-boiled eggs, a large a loaf spit split in half and furnished with great chunks of cold veal called by madame a sandwich <clears throat> Oops. Just the book here. called by madame a sandwich half a lobster cheese a bottle of wine and sundry cookies and cakes if one did not eat off a table 
under Madame's personal supervision, one starved. One day I shared a carriage with two ladies from Paris, and we went sightseeing. I have often forgot. I have half forgotten what we saw of historical interest, but I will remember well remember the merry time we had. The ladies had no English. I know French words. We drank cider in wayside booths out of gay cups of Breton ware that had no saucers. I persuaded the women, the woman, to sell me two cups. I knew they sold in the market for four pennies. I offered her eight pennies apiece. She accepted and with a shrug handed them over saying the equivalent of Mademoiselle's most peculiar. We went into a very old church and my companions bowed to a great many saints. They dabbled in in a trough of holy water, crossing themselves and murmuring, Merci, Saint-Pierre, merci. One of the ladies took my hand, dipped it into the trough, crossed my forehead and breast with it, murmuring, Merci, Saint-Pierre, merci. It would be good for me, she said. (laughs) Mr. Gibb, I've gone stale. The admission shamed me. Mr. Gibb replied, I am not surprised. Did I not warn you? Rest. I did not. I dare not rest. In a month, two at most, I must return to Canada. I heard there was a fine watercolorist, Australian, teaching at Concarneau, a place which, a place much frequented by artists. I went to Concarneau, Concarneau studied under her. Change of medium, change of teacher, change of environment refreshed me. I put in six weeks good work under her. Concarneau was a coast fishing town. I sketched the people, their houses, boats, wine shops, sailmakers in their lofts. Then I went up to Paris, crossed the English Channel, and from Liverpool set sail for Canada. That is the end of France. And the next chapter is called Rejected. So we shall see what she brings us next. Thanks for listening. I hope you have a nice day or evening. Au revoir.